the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we join Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in a study of the book of Leviticus. Last time in Leviticus chapter 22, we saw how Jesus is the perfect, spotless, sinless Lamb of God that was necessary to take our place in judgment. As we continue our study of the civil law for the Israelites as found in the book of Leviticus, we will see how God desired the Israelites to go about their festivals and celebrations. We join Pastor Will in Leviticus chapter 23, verse 1. Remember the whole theme of the book of Leviticus is that God has called his people to be holy. In the book of Exodus, they entered into that relationship, that covenant relationship with him through the building of the tabernacle. And now God is explaining to them how they're going to be his people, what he expects of them. And we looked at the first section of Leviticus, which showed how they would relate to God in the tabernacle, which would be through their offerings. You had the three voluntary offerings, the burnt offering, the grain offering, and the peace offering, and then the two compulsory offerings, sin offering and the trespass offering. Then we saw how that was all culminated in the uh, dedication of the tabernacle. Of course, Aaron's two sons were killed during that time, in which then God begins to lay out in the third section of Leviticus the laws for ritual purity. You know, that was an area where they had failed. And then he lays out the laws of moral purity for us. And then we saw how the, there were some rules for the priests about how to do their job. Well, in verse 23 now, we enter into the sixth section of Leviticus, which deals with the feasts of worship, how they were to worship the Lord yearly. And so it says in chapter 23, verse 1, And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say to them, Concerning the feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, even these are my feasts. The Lord wanted them to celebrate all throughout their year. It's funny because when when I was over in Israel, our tour guide, who's an Israeli, we are Israelis. We love to celebrate. He goes, we love to celebrate. The Feast of Purim was going on during that time. That's not a Levitical feast. It's a biblical feast, but it's not a biblical command to celebrate the feast. That's the time where they celebrate how God delivered them from Haman and all the decree against the people when they were in Persia. It's kind of funny because their Purim is like our Halloween a little bit. So everybody dresses up in masks and goes masquerading around the streets. I don't know why they do that, but that's what they do. But it's a time of celebration for them and they don't need any excuses to celebrate because they like to celebrate. God told them to. And we're going to look at seven feasts that they did once a year and then a weekly feast as well. We're going to look at those tonight. They are his feasts. He wanted his people to do this. A couple things as we we start off here, the word feast means just an appointed time. It's a set time. This was not something random where they would just celebrate, but these were set times where they would celebrate and worship the Lord. He says here that you speak unto the children of Israel concerning these set times of the Lord, which you shall proclaim, they are holy convocations. So not only were they appointed times to meet as a nation, but they were holy festivals. The word holy means apartness or separateness or sacredness. They were not just any party, but they were special to the Lord. I love to celebrate. I am a happy person, generally speaking. I like to celebrate. I love birthday parties. I like to be able to do those things. I love being, especially times with family and stuff. Those are always special, okay? But that's different than like when we come to celebrate the Lord. 
And oftentimes I've heard people, even within the church, try to make comparisons between the human celebrations we have and the celebrations we have to the Lord. During the time when the holy laughter thing was really big in the church, one of the excuses was, is they would say, well, can't God just celebrate with his kids? What's wrong with getting around and laughing? I would say, because it's weird. Y'all are like rolling around on the ground. You know, somebody told me today, said, Pastor Will, I'm so glad you talked about what you did this morning because I was one of those guys you mentioned. And he said, you know what happened to me at at a church I was at for a while? Somebody came up to me and neighed at me. Not like, nay, sir, don't do that. But like, you know, that kind of a nay. Never heard that from the pulpit, have you? And he said, the problem wasn't once they did that. That was weird. He said, but other people were encouraging them saying, oh man, they're anointed of the Lord. Okay, that's weird. That's not biblical. There's nothing in the Bible that would say that was okay. That's somebody getting really caught up in their emotions or they have deeper problems than just being caught up in their emotions. And it's not something the Lord wants us to do. I heard people say though, but can't we just celebrate? And I'm like, but these are holy celebrations that they had. God wanted his people to celebrate, but they were set apart from the world. They were different than the world. They were sacred. There was something about them that was different than the way we do things. What kind of celebrations were they then? What makes them sacred or holy? Well, it calls them convocations, which is an old English word that simply means a sacred assembly or a time of reading. These were times that they would set themselves apart to God to be taught by him. Like this is a celebration tonight. We come to sing to him. And now we're going to open his word. We're going to open his word and we're going to study it. Many of those same churches that got involved in the holy laughter and the, you know, all the weird stuff that they called the Holy Spirit that is not the Holy Spirit. It is, it is a spirit, but it's not the Holy Spirit. They, uh, there was one pastor of uh, this, these churches that told a story one. He said, you know, he went to a church. It was actually a Calvary Chapel and he was visiting and he was sitting there with the pastor as the worship was going on and, uh, or one of the assistant pastors as the pastor was teaching and he leaned over to the assistant pastor and he said, man, when are we going to see something? And he goes, what do you mean? He goes, this is just stuff. When are we going to actually see God do something? And the guy leaned over to me and said, he goes, well, we believe God's doing something when he teaches the word. And he goes, the word of God's boring. He said, I want to see God do something. Listen, God's doing something right now. Do you know what the word of God has the ability to do? Let me share this with you. This is the coolest thing. The Bible says that the word of God in Hebrews chapter, I think it's five. It says that it is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart, right? But then there's another part. It says it's able to pierce through the spirit to get right to the soul, or the soul to get right to the spirit. What's the difference between the soul and the spirit? Well, my soul is is who I am. It's my will, my intellect, my emotions. And and we can have a soulish experience with God. That's not necessarily bad. I'm a kind of a soulish individual. Most of my experiences with God when we sing and we worship or I'm listening to teaching in the word, it's emotional for me. It's it's powerful. I, I feel things deeply. But there are times when I've heard a teaching and I didn't necessarily feel a whole lot. But guess what? Something happened because the word of God was pushing past my lack of emotion to feed my inner man to feed my spirit, the part of me that actually fellowships with God, the part of me that was dead before I came to Christ and now has been made alive in Christ. The word of God is something even when you don't feel it. And that's something in truth. I shouldn't have to feel God. There's a sense of, I have a feeling I'm not gonna get to my message tonight. (laughs) There's a sense of idolatry to that idea. I remember I had some very powerful experiences in my life as a young Christian, very emotional experiences. And there were times when I would come and I would want to recreate that feeling or that emotion that I was experiencing because that's how I sensed God. And and what I felt like the Lord was telling me at times when I was just yearning and longing to experience that feeling again, I felt like the Lord was saying saying to me, Will, why have you replaced me with this feeling? Well, what do you mean I've replaced you with that feeling? You're the one that gave me the feeling. And he said, well, yeah, but that time, but now you're, you're worshiping the feeling instead of me. 
There's a beautiful verse in Jeremiah. I think it's around 22, 23. But it says that blessed is the man who bears fruit even when his tree is not in season. Even when his tree is not in season. The Lord's telling me, are you gonna worship me when you don't feel anything? Are you gonna surrender to me when you don't sense my presence? What about when I feel far from you? Are you gonna still obey me? And so it's so important and crucial. I I don't wanna ever discourage any true move of the spirit, man. We wanna be open to that and whatever God wants to do, he can have his way. But God is gonna move, I find supernaturally, in what appears to be to us very natural means. The simple teaching of his word. They were to get together and it wasn't to be all whooping it up and creating all weird things and fire coming down from heaven. Those were aberrations. Those were not the things that happened every time they got together. Oftentimes it was just a simple teaching of the word. I love it in the book of Ezra where Ezra talks about how he says they all stood up to hear the word of God, the law of Moses being read to them, the law of God. And it says that they read the word of God distinctly. So they didn't just read it in a boring way, but they read it with understanding in a way that sometimes as it was being read, you could, oh, that makes sense, more sense to me now. I'm just hearing it read. Then the Bible says they gave the sense. They gave the understanding of the text to them. They explained it to them. And then it says that they applied it to their lives. Same thing Paul told Timothy to do. When I come, he says, give attention to reading, to teaching, and to exhortation. Same three things. And there's supernatural things that happen when we do that, even if you don't feel like supernatural things are happening. See, when we rest in that, we don't succumb to the idolatry of the soul. Now, are soulish experiences in and of themselves bad? No. Some of us are more soulish than others. But if we long only for that, we're missing out on the true food, which is how he feeds our spirit. So when they got together, these were times to set themselves apart to God. God, I want you to speak to me. I want you to teach me through your word. They were going to read the scriptures to them, read the law to them. There were times where they would learn. Now, the third thing we see here is that they were his feasts. They didn't get to do them their way or do whatever they wanted with them, but they were his feasts. They were to be done his way, and so now God gives the instructions. So the first one he mentions here is the Sabbath. Verse 3. Six days shall work be done. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work therein. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all of your dwellings. The first thing we see here about the Sabbath, it was given to them for rest. The very word Sabbath means rest. It's a Sabbath of rest, a Shabbat of Shabbat. It was a rest to rest. You know, it was a rest from work for the purpose of relaxing. You know, the idea wasn't that they were going to have a lot of stuff going on that was a hassle. It was a time where they were just going to kick up the hammock and chill. The food had been cooked the day before. All the preparation had been made from the day before. And today they were just going to enjoy it. It's funny, when we were in Israel during the Sabbath, they just party. I mean, they just party. They all come out, they wear these goofy hats and everything, and they just have a great time. Oftentimes what they do is they actually go out to eat that night, since they're not allowed to cook, so they'll go out to eat. And they obviously can't go to a, a Jewish place, so they'll go to a Muslim restaurant, or like they go to the kibbutzes, the, where they have the hotel restaurants and stuff, and they'll go there, and the Muslim staff will work usually during that time, and, and they have these great celebrations. They just have fun. They just, they just, they rest, they chill. They, they, they kind of, you know, reset their, their week and, and just enjoy each other's company. And it's a great time. You know, our, our tour guide said, he goes, he goes, we love the Sabbath. It's our favorite festival. That's why we celebrate it every week. So it was to not stress out about, but to relax. It's a holy convocation. So it was also a time to set themselves apart, to be taught by him. There's a whole ceremony they go through where they, they explain, you know, to their kids, this is what this is about. Now, unlike the other feasts, it says, it is a Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. In other words, they didn't have to come to the tabernacle for this one. You celebrated it in your home with your family. That's where you did it. You didn't have to go to the tabernacle every week, okay? So 
how does the Sabbath point to Jesus? Well, he's our rest. See, God finished all the work that needed to be done in creation in six days, and the seventh day he rested. So all Adam had to do was to enter into what God had done and enjoy it, right? That's all Adam had to do. I mean, he had it good. He didn't have it without work, but the work wasn't with toil. Now, when Satan stole man's rest by deceiving him and Adam disobeyed God, the curse required man to work with toil. So God instituted the Sabbath so man could have one day of rest to remember what was lost through the fall and look forward to the promise of the Messiah. Now, that rest that they experienced the Sabbath day, though, was not like every other day wasn't like that. And the Bible says that going into the promised land was kind of like a rest for them. And yet that didn't fulfill the Sabbath. Turn to Hebrews chapter four with me. Verse eight, it says, for if Jesus had given them rest, but it's not referring to Jesus, the one that we worship. Jesus's Jewish name was Yeshua or Joshua. And this is a reference to Joshua who brought the people of God into the promised land. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. There was a prophecy that set up in verse seven that today, in other words, he was speaking to that David's generation saying today and your day, they were already in the promised land. But he said, today, if you won't harden your hearts, I'll give you rest. What do you mean I'll give you rest? They're already in the promised land. If Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day coming, a day coming where we would all find rest. There therefore does remain a Sabbath or a rest to the people of God. There's a Sabbath for us as Christians. And what is it? Verse 10, for he that has entered into his rest, the one that celebrates the true Sabbath, he has ceased also from his own works as God did from his. Let us labor therefore to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after their same example of unbelief or not trusting God. We celebrate the Sabbath every day by resting in the finished work of Christ. He is our rest. So he fulfills the Sabbath. It points to him. Now, the next feast we look at is the first feast on the Jewish calendar that they would celebrate, major feast. They would celebrate the Sabbath every week from Friday at 6 p.m. to Saturday at 6 p.m. Well, verses four and five relay the Sabbath. These are the feasts of the Lord, even holy convocations, which you shall proclaim in their season. So the Sabbath was a weekly feast. These were seasonal feasts. In the 14th day of the first month at evening is or starts the Lord's Passover. And that's all he gives us on the Passover here. Now, the reason he does that is because Exodus 12 has already taught us about the Passover. So why don't we just look back, and I'm not going to give a teaching on it because we'll run out of time real quick that way. But if you want to find out more about the Sabbath, uh, the uh, Passover in detail, you can get the teaching from Exodus 12. But I'm going to read just the first 13 verses here for you. And the Lord spoke unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. This starts their spiritual or religious calendar. Speak you unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month, they shall take them, every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for each house, each family. And if the household be too little for the lamb, in other words, they would waste a lot of food, well, then let him and his neighbor next unto his house, take it according to the number of the souls. Every man according to his eating shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. He shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats, and he shall keep it up until the 14th day of the same month. And after that, the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. And they shall take of the blood and they'll strike it on the two side posts and on the upper door post of the houses wherein they shall eat it. And they shall eat the flesh in that night, roasted with fire and unleavened bread and with bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Eat not of it raw, nor sodden it all with water, but roast with fire, his head with his legs, and with the pertinence thereof. And you shall let nothing of it remain until the morning, and that which remains of it until the morning you shall burn with 
fire. This is the Lord's Passover. If you keep reading, there's some more details there. How does the Passover point to Jesus? Well, he's our Passover lamb. He is the one without spot or blemish. He's the one who entered into Jerusalem on the 10th day. We just celebrated this. He entered in on the 10th day, the triumphant entry. And then he was killed on the 14th, the day of Passover, as our Passover lamb. And the blood in the door, there's two side posts in the top with the bowl at the bottom. If you look at it, it marks the sign of the cross. And it was roasted in the fire, just as Christ, we studied at Good Friday, was roasted in the fiery judgment of the wrath of God. Well, how do we celebrate the Passover in our lives? Well, Jesus is our new beginning. Well, you read there in Exodus and it mentions that you take a lamb and then he becomes the lamb and then he becomes your lamb. And if we're to experience Christ as our Passover lamb to celebrate it, we have to receive him as our lamb. He can't just be a lamb or the lamb, but he has to be my lamb, my sacrifice, my Passover. And we also saw that only those who had applied the blood by faith were saved. If you didn't apply the blood, it didn't matter if you were Jewish or Egyptian, you were not spared. But if you applied the blood by faith, you were saved. And so we celebrate the Passover by receiving Christ, by putting our faith in his finished work on the cross. The next feast we come to, verse six, is the feast of unleavened bread. And on the 15th day of the same month is the feast of unleavened bread. So right after, the day right after Passover, they start the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. In the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no servile work therein, but you shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord for seven days. And then in the seventh day, it's another holy convocation. You shall do no servile work therein. We see here about how they're to celebrate the feast. The specifics here of the feast mentions that it starts the day after Passover, and that day is a day of holy convocation. This they need to come to the tabernacle for, just like Passover. They need to be there at the tabernacle to bring their lamb and then to celebrate their dinner. And then after that, they're going to have a special service. We're going to study the word and hear from the Lord. And the Bible mentions here they're also not allowed to do any servile work. It means no labor or physical work. In other words, you could do business, you could still do business deals, but you couldn't do any physical labor. For more on that, we turn back to Exodus chapter 12, verse 14. And this day shall be unto you for a memorial, and you shall keep it a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. Seven days shall you eat unleavened bread. Even the first day you shall put away or remove all the leaven out of your houses. The leaven is like a yeast. It's, a, it's what causes the bread to expand. He says, you remove it out of your houses. For whosoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that soul shall be cut off from Israel. And in the first day, there shall be a holy convocation. And in the seventh day, there shall be a holy convocation to you. No manner of work shall be done in them, those two days, except that which every man must eat that only may be done of you. So the only physical labor you can do is make your food during those two days. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For in this selfsame day have I brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore shall you observe this day in your generations by an ordinance forever. So this is what we have here, uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And we've already looked at, again, I'm not going to go over it in detail because we already looked at it when we studied Exodus chapter 12. Uh, but how does it point to Jesus? Well, he's God's perfect man. When we talk about no leaven, leaven is a type of sin. Jesus used that on many occasions as a symbol for sin. And of course, Jesus had no sin in this life, right? He had no sin. Also, no work was to be done during those two holy convocations. And we don't have to do any work for our salvation because Jesus already did the work for us. You know, his perfect life is attributed to us. His righteousness, his actual righteousness. It's not just a declaration of righteousness, but his actual righteousness is attributed to us. Isn't that awesome? So how do we celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread? We'll turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and we'll look at verses 6 through 8. There was sexual immorality going on in the church, and they were actually boasting about it. Yeah, we're free in Christ. Isn't this great? Paul tells them in verse 6 of 1 Corinthians 5, he says, you're boasting, you're glorying, it's not good. 
Don't you realize that, here it is, a little leaven leavens the whole lump? All it takes is a little bit of leaven to make the dough rise. It's going to affect the whole lump of bread. Purge out, therefore, that old leaven, that old way you used to live. You might be a new lump. Isn't that great? We're all lumps in Jesus. And then he explains, as you are unleavened, for even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. There it is. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not Passover, but unleavened, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. While we celebrate the feast of Passover by receiving our Passover lamb, by receiving Christ, we celebrate the feast of unleavened bread by living out our name. We're Christians, right? What does that mean? A follower of Christ. So he who is the perfect man, we're striving to live like he did. Our desire is to live in a way that pleases him. We've been delivered from our Egypt. We've been delivered from the world, our old life. And now we need to allow Jesus to change us and to purge sin out of our lives, just like the Jewish people would purge the leaven out of their homes when they would celebrate this feast. So the feast of unleavened bread. Now the third feast that they would celebrate, aside from the, uh, uh, the seasonal feast they would celebrate, aside from Sabbath, was the feast of first fruits, and we find that here in verse nine. And this is the first time we get this in detail here. So we're gonna cover this a little bit more. And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When you be come into the land which I give unto you, and shall reap the harvest thereof, then shall you bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest unto the priest. So we see here that this takes place very shortly after the start of harvest. So it's very shortly after the Feast of Unleavened Bread. In fact, I believe it ends, begins at the end of the Feast of Unleavened Bread when they would go back to work and start their harvest. But before they could partake of it, they would have to bring a sheaf of their harvest to the priest. So this would be a celebration that would have to occur at the tabernacle. And the priest, verse 11, shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted for you on the morrow after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. So he would take this this sheaf, which, is, which was uh, the weight of measurement, was an omer, which would be like two liters of barley. And they would take it, they'd wrap it up, and they would take it and they'd wave it back and forth before the Lord. And it says, you shall, uh, and you shall offer that day when you wave the sheaf, also a he lamb without blemish of the first year for a burnt offering unto the Lord. Remember the burnt offering symbolizes someone's absolute surrender to God. So, what they would be doing there during this time when they would make this offering of their first fruits, they'd wave it because the idea is, Lord, it all belongs to you. I'm signifying that everything I has, my entire harvest belongs to you. And if you ask for it, Lord, I'll give it to you because it's all yours. I'm bringing the first portion to, to prove that to you, that, I, that that's my heart. And then they would bring the burnt offering to say, Lord, I'm sold out. Whatever you want, it's yours. Now that's interesting. If we all approached our work that way, wouldn't it change how our attitude where it was when it, we don't get a raise or when it seems like work isn't fair? I mean, wouldn't it change how we approach things? Well, maybe the Lord wants me to work in an unfair environment. I'm okay with that. He's my source, right? The amends were quieter after I said that. <laughs> You'll also bring a grain offering, verse 13. It shall be two-tenth deals of fine flour mingled with oil. So the two-tenth deals of fine flour mingled with oil, it says, an offering made by fire unto the Lord for a sweet savor. And the drink offering thereof shall be of wine, the fourth part of a hen, about a liter of wine. And you would drink it, you wouldn't drink it, you'd dump it out. And the idea being behind it again, my life is surrendered to you. It's poured out completely. And we see here that they were to refrain from eating any of their bread, any of their parched corn, nor their green ears until the selfsame day that you have brought an offering unto your God. It will be a statute forever throughout your generations and all your dwellings. You can't eat any of your harvest until you come and bring your first fruits to the Lord. This they would celebrate after the Feast of Unleavened Bread when their harvest time began, the barley harvest in particular, and and the Lord would have them do this. How does this point to Jesus? 
Well, it shows that he's our resurrected king. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15. He's our resurrected king. You say, what does this have to do with resurrection, Will? Well, I wouldn't have figured that out either unless Paul had told us. We're going to read verses 20 through 23. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the what? The first fruits of them that slept or those who have died. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order. Christ the first fruits, and afterward they that are Christ at his coming. In the Old Testament, we don't see a whole lot of information about them getting new bodies. And the reason that we see that is because they could not get their new bodies until Jesus got his. They could not experience their resurrection until he experienced his resurrection. That's what the scripture says there, very plainly. Here we find in the first three feasts that would all be covered between mid-March to mid-April, like Easter this year for us was more April, but sometimes it's mid-March. Depending upon when that time falls in the Jewish religious calendar, all three of these feasts, though, took place during that time period. And so they cover all three aspects of our conversion. Our new birth in Christ, Passover, our every day life in Christ surrendered to him, unleavened bread, and then our resurrection when we go to be with him, right? All three are covered in these feasts, our new birth, our Christian life, and our resurrection in him. Just as the wave offering being waved from side to side represented the whole harvest, Jesus is our wave offering, representing that we'll be resurrected someday too. How do we celebrate that? Well, by surrendering our lives to God. As the harvest had to wait to be reaped, we are waiting for our resurrection, right? We are waiting for the time when the trumpet sounds and the Bible says the dead in Christ shall rise first and that we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together to be with the Lord and so shall we ever be with the Lord, amen? I mean, we're looking forward to that. We're waiting for that day. In the meantime, though, just as the wheat had to weather all the storms of the world, so we wait and we weather the storms of life faithfully, trusting in our Savior who's coming for us. The Feast of Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the Feast of First Fruits all pointed to Jesus. Jesus is the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world, the Lamb slain on our behalf for our sin. In Jesus, we have the power over the leaven of sin and shame in our lives. Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. He is the resurrected Savior that proved He has power over sin and death. Jesus is the reason we celebrate and can have true joy and peace. If you have any spiritual or physical need, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.